Hello, and welcome to the second episode of HODLPAC's interview series with members of and candidates for the United States Congress. HODLPAC is a community-governed political action committee with the mission of supporting candidates whose policies would promote the development of cryptocurrencies and the decentralized economy in the United States. Much like the crypto networks we want to see thrive, HODLPAC relies on the participation of the community. Those who donate decide which politicians we support. If you'd like to learn more and get involved, feel free to visit us at www.holdpack.org. I'm your host, Tyler Wordy. Our guest today is Representative Warren Davidson of Ohio's 8th District. Representative Davidson sits on the House Financial Services Committee and is an active champion for pro-crypto policies in Washington. He is the sponsor of many relevant bills related to crypto, including the Token Taxonomy Act, the Virtual Currency Consumer Protection Act, and the U.S. Virtual Currency Market and Regulatory Competitiveness Act. He is also a member of the FinTech Task Force. However, perhaps the thing the congressman is most famous for in the crypto community is his introduction of the word shitcoin to the congressional record. Representative Davidson, welcome to the show. Nice to join you. Thanks for, thanks for meeting with me today. Absolutely. Thanks again for coming on. So you've been on a few different Bitcoin and crypto related podcasts, uh, including Noted with Pierre Richard and Michael Goldstein. You've been on Pomp's podcast and, and Laura Shin's Unchained podcast. And you've gone into great detail on your views on, on crypto there. Eventually, we'll, we'll have those links to those conversations up on, up on your HODL score page on our website. Uh, but for now, we'll just link to them in, in the transcript in, in our newsletter. I definitely encourage anyone listening or reading along here to go check those out because those people are much better interviewers than I am. But nonetheless, I thought we could get started with a bit of background on yourself, Representative Davidson. How did you end up as Ohio's 8th District Congressman? Yeah, so, um, you know, I've been a member of Congress for just over four years now. And the district that I live, live in is Southwest Ohio. So it doesn't have either Cincinnati or Dayton as a city center in it, but essentially that corner of Ohio along the Indiana border. And uh, my former member of Congress was Speaker Boehner. So when he resigned in 2015, uh, you know, I was just watching the news, probably like a lot of other people. I'm like, oh, I wonder who's going to be the next speaker but I was also, well, I wonder who's going to be my next member of Congress. And so pretty readily, your traditional candidates got in the race. That was September of 15. October, I started getting invites to a couple of people's fundraisers. And then November, a couple of people stopped in my office to raise money. And I thought, you know, uh, you know, they asked who I would back in this race. And, and I said, well, you guys are the political people. Who's everyone going to get behind? And they said, you know, it'd be great if there was an Army Ranger business guy in the race. And we laughed and thought how crazy that would be. So I went home and told my wife about my day. And she said, well, what'd you tell him? I said, well, I told him it's crazy because it's crazy. And she goes, she goes, well, call him back. You'd be great at that. So, you know, at the end of the day, we looked into what it would take to win. And we basically did it like a product launch. We didn't, uh, the person who did my campaign had done marketing for the manufacturing companies I had owned. And, um, you know, we basically just said, hey, here's the features of this product. Uh, Davidson, she's like, you know, I'm not a Republican. I'm not even a, I've never even worked on a campaign. Uh, and I said, sure, but let's try it. And it worked. So one in a crowded primary and then won the office and took office in June of 16. And ever since then, you've been very active uh, in crypto related policy. In particular, one of the things that, you know, burst onto the scene with, I suppose, is, is in September of 2018, when you, along with other representatives, hosted a high profile roundtable with major players in crypto on how legislative efforts could help provide uh, regulatory certainty for the industry. 
So I, I know you've talked about this elsewhere, but it'd be great to hear a bit of background on how that came together and you know what your takeaways from it were. Uh, and then also how the policy environment for crypto has either changed or not changed since then. Yeah. Yeah. So thanks for the question. So, you know, I became a member of the House Financial Services Committee in January of 17. And, you know, people will remember that 2017 was, you know, dynamic in this space. I mean, that was the ICO piece. And, you know, while there were some good offerings, there were a lot of uh, bad ones and frankly, a lot of fraud. And normally when that happens, you can easily get hearings. So we couldn't get hearings really in depth about that, which was surprising to me. But, you know, hey, I'm a new member, pretty junior member. And so we went through all of 17 and, you know, we could only get hearings about, well, this is what a uh, digital wallet is. And this is, and people were trying to explain how any of this would even work, but not really anything in depth. Uh, we did have a hearing during that time frame that kind of exposed some of the uh, like companies like Chainalysis that show that you can actually follow a distributed ledger and frankly use that kind of analysis to solve things like the Mt. Gox issue. So that kind of raised a little bit of awareness, but that's really all we were able to get going. And so that's where the idea of uh, saying, well, I can't schedule a hearing, but I could at least have a meeting. So I said, let's get this meeting going. We booked a room at the Library of Congress and we were hoping, you know, we'd get a dozen, maybe 20 industry folks to come in and talk with us. And then as the momentum kept building and building, we had to cap it at 50 to make sure people could have meaningful participation. And frankly, instead of just sending a representative, people sent their CEOs or general counsels. And I mean, we had, you know, really the biggest names, uh, not just in crypto, but in, you know, venture capital, you know, NASDAQ, State Street, Fidelity, big companies trying to deal with custody issues and, you know, how to uh, introduce this to retail investors in a way. So it was, uh, it was incredibly well received. And so we came out of that. That was the piece that got us a lot of momentum. So following that, that uh, roundtable, you know, we started working together, Darren Soto and I in particular, on how to craft a bill that was the consensus afterwards. And really at the last meeting, you know, Darren asked a good question. He said, you know, why, why would this become a partisan issue? It's really from the participants in, the, in attendance and the members on the panel and staff that were there, it was clear that it really had nothing to do with partisanship. It was really whether you actually understood the issue or not. So we left pretty optimistic that, you know, we would be able to spread this out and, uh, and get some momentum with the legislation. And it took longer than we thought to uh, kind of get the consensus together. And uh, so we said, well, by the end of the year, we'll do it. And at the start of the next Congress, we'll introduce it as a new piece of legislation. And so we did that and we got uh, a feedback period and we thought, well, we'll get a little bit of feedback and we'll probably introduce it, you know, in February. So it's like a month or two of work. And it, it didn't really get introduced until I think early April of 19. So it took a lot of work to get that consensus. And since then, we've had a lot of feedback on the version we submitted in, in, in April of 19. And we have a, a list of things that we would probably consider as amendments. Uh, and that's from colleagues and from, you know, industry folks and regulators. And frankly, some of the things that would be updated for relevance, because prior to that, you know, we didn't see Libra, for example, we didn't see you know, some of the things that have happened along the way. And I think the need for a light touch regulatory clarity, as we've said, not a heavy hand, but frankly, the things that Congress got right in the 90s for the internet, we need to get right right now. And it's not because uh, of our laws being so heavy handed that companies are leaving America to avoid our laws. They're leaving our country with their investments 
they, they're based here. They have innovative ideas here. A lot of their talent is here. We have the right infrastructure here, but that we don't have the framework to do the investment. So they're making their investment in places like Switzerland and Singapore and elsewhere because they have established regulatory clarity on how uh, these would be treated. And frankly, not all the use cases are currencies. You know, the language, that's why we chose taxonomy, because the language of the space, frankly, with the origins in Bitcoin in particular, go to the heart of currency and sound money. But what blockchain made clear is that there will be, you know, a nearly infinite number of use cases, much like the internet. So we're in the very early stage of use cases. And for those things in particular that have no desire to be a currency, in some cases, no interest in even being a payment system, they're just representing a good or a service, an asset uh, of some sort, the clarity is even more important in a lot of ways. So that's why I think the urgency really continues to build. And I really feel like we've missed uh, an important moment and every day we waste is um, really putting the United States at a disadvantage. So I, I have two follow-up questions to your answer there. The first is, how do you stay on top of industry developments to inform your legislative work, uh, as was the purpose of the roundtable? And two, do you still see the need for the Token Taxonomy Act as it was written back then, or have developers in the industry changed your opinion? Yeah, so uh, two things. One, how do I stay on top of it? One is I spend a lot of time meeting with people and talking with people, uh, and frankly, market participants especially. And, and so you get that firsthand direct feedback and you know, frankly, take the meetings or the phone calls, emails, chats, whatever. And then uh, I, I have, frankly, gotten invited to a lot of conferences, whether they're virtual or in person. And so there, and then I think the last thing is there's, there's really plenty of good things to listen to or read in the space. And so, you know, whether that's books, podcasts, uh, journals, blogs, you know, there, there, there is a lot out there. It's not as mainstream as I wish it was. And, and frankly, even when it got a lot of attention under Libra, uh, because Facebook launched it, unfortunately, a lot of the attention just went to Facebook as the underlying company and not to the actual idea. And, and I think the other piece, you don't really draw enough uh, of the, I think one of the core issues and why uh, the Token Taxonomy Act is so important is the inherent conflict in this space is centralized versus decentralized, whether you can have true distributed ledger or you need a central authority. And fundamentally, that's coming to a rise in central bank digital currencies. And so that got a little bit of traction in, in one of the bills that we considered as a way to improve fast payments to unbanked people during the CARES situation, during, during the response to COVID. So we had hearings about that in the FinTech Task Force. And there are a lot of people in Congress who love the essential features of our Federal Reserve System and the Bank Secrecy Act, any money laundering, know your customer provisions. And they really want what a lot of people feared with Facebook is that they would filter their financial transactions the same way they've started filtering speech or content. And just like some people really want them to be aggressive in filtering speech or content, there are people that really want somebody to keep them safe and filter all the financial transactions. And what you see at its core, what Bitcoin made people aware of is the inherent system is permissionless. There is no filter. And frankly, you have a layer of privacy that keeps you safer, right? So you're not worried about your account number the same way. There's, it's much less vulnerable, much more secure. And so the biggest thing for those colleagues that I've got in Congress, and frankly, for a lot of people is to say, look, privacy is not the same as secrecy. So go back to the 
early hearings we were talking about with companies like Chainalysis, where you can follow the moves. There is a, a way to use the technology to follow people. But what you don't want is the government, frankly, reviewing every single transaction and saying, oh, well, it's okay to do that for these people right now. And the whole beauty of it is the whole reason a lot of people are unbanked is there's a sad legacy in history of essentially an attitude that says, oh, well, you're not going to bank those people, are you? And over time, the those people might change or morph. And you don't really want a system where anyone could say, you're not going to bank those people. You want a system that is, is permissionless. And I think that's the heart of what would make something not a security, no central authority that can alter the value of something. And I think that's the heart of what we must preserve in order to have sound money in our country. You touched on a lot of great stuff there that I would love to follow up on. The, the first of which is, you know, you mentioned the FinTech task force. Just taking a step back real quick, can you explain what the FinTech task force is? And it's a new uh, creation of, of Capitol Hill. So if you could please just uh, explain for our listeners and readers what that is. Yeah. So the Financial Services Committee has, you know, broad jurisdiction over the entire financial services sector. Uh, with a couple idiosyncratic uh, quirks uh, unique to Congress. So the Ag Committee, for example, oversees the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, which isn't really rational because there are lots of commodities, but that's the way they structured it in Congress. So with that caveat, broadly financial services, the expertise, the domain expertise is our committee. And that breaks down into subcommittees. You know, I'm on capital markets subcommittee, for example. Some are on financial institutions and so on and so forth. Housing and insurance is another subcommittee. Uh, so this is an area that is really focused on fintech. And there are a couple areas that we're interested in, and, and payments is one of the biggest ones, but fintech broadly. And then there's another group that's meeting on artificial intelligence and how to use AI for all sorts of things. And one of the things that's gotten a lot of attention is you know identity and linking that to credit, you know, China is essentially integrating those two to create a social credit score, which is related to a credit score, but different and kind of Orwellian. So that's, that's the charter for FinTech is to try to um, have some of your people that really do get the, the, the technology and the financial services space and how uh, we need to weigh through those. And I think one of the more important things that we're getting to in that is privacy, because that's really foundational to a lot of this. And it's one of the things that's most abridged in the financial services space. So another thing you mentioned in your previous answer when you mentioned the FinTech task force was the recent hearing on the digital dollar. And I want to get into that a bit more as I think a lot of the themes you mentioned uh, apply to that debate as well. But before you do that, I was wondering if you could talk a bit about Bitcoin specifically and how you view you know, its role in this larger discussion. Yeah. So if you think back to the Satoshi Nakamoto's famous white paper, I mean, a lot of the core was fear for the lack of sound money, right? And Bitcoin has proven itself to be a store of value. And so I personally look at it like digital gold, and we'll see how far along it moves from that spectrum. But it's, uh, it's proven a, a secure store of value. That's the proxy. How confident are you that this is a store of value that's you know, enduring and fungible? right? So you can move it. So that's, those are, they start to look like some of the features that you'd want in a currency. But central banks have a lock on monetary policy. Frankly, we had sound money uh, for a period with Bretton Woods. The last time the planet had as much debt as we have right now as a percentage of GDP was after World War II. And, you know, we went to a sound money uh, policy uh, with the treaty at Bretton Woods. And then in 1971, the, the monetarists, 
essentially moved to a free floating exchange rate, sort of a quasi index of a petrodollar in, a, in, a, in an era where essentially the commodities around the world are ultimately settled in dollars. And so the U.S. ended up continuing to be the reserve currency around the world, which has provided some stability, particularly for those people that have pegged to the dollar. But you essentially have a unit of measure that is part of the measurement system. So you have a, pro- you have a measurement problem with this free-floating system, and you see monetary inflation showing up. And you, in part by design right now in a crisis, this is one of the features that people like of central banks, but also one of the flaws. You know, we, uh, the economy didn't really have its own hiccup here. It was a kind of uh, semi-controlled reaction to uh, a public health crisis, but it was a decision uh, or a whole series of decisions to effectively close vast portions of our economy. And the financial markets reacted and the Federal Reserve stepped in and provided a lot of stability. And Congress, with fiscal policy, shot a lot of money out into the system too. But the moral hazard there highlights the problem. We're not really borrowing this money. We're essentially printing it. So we're diluting the value of everyone else's piece. And that's where, if you have a central authority in, um, let's say, um, a shit coin, they could just dilute everyone's value, right? And that's one of the problems. That's one of the things why people say this thing is crap, because the, the, the founders can essentially destroy the, everyone's value after they've already parted with a lot of money. And the idea, do you really want that to be your central bank? Do you want that to be your monetary policy? So we need a sound money principle uh, for our country. And the consequence shows up in the wealth gap heavily because, you know, your middle class families and frankly, your seniors who, who aren't really highly wealthy, they're, they're looking at going safe. They're not putting their capital into the stock market. They want super safe investments. And those things have really struggled to find yield because as rates have been artificially kept low for all this time, partially to hold down the, the interest uh, service on the debt, there's no yield for savers, right? And there's no, there's no real signal in terms of you know, prioritizing debt as an instrument. What is happening is shares of publicly traded companies are inflated. And you can see that, I like pointing out, for example, not to pick on a company, but Darden Restaurants as an example. They're, they're a holding company for restaurants. Their shares dropped you know, to about 30% of their pre-market shutdown value uh, at the bottom. And now they're close to where they were before the COVID panic, right? And if you go to any restaurant, um, including many of the Darden restaurants, the fundamentals aren't there. They're not actually performing like that. So the real economy, the Main Street economy is not happening that way but the, the market is. And the same problem happens with the debt. If you look at the structured credit market and all the debt that's highly liquid, part of the reason that there's yield there is because you don't have to hold it for 10 years. I mean, no one wanted to hold 10-year treasury bills for only you know one and a half percent. Now they're not even a percent, right? So no one really believes that's reflective of the inflation. That's a negative return, negative real return adjusted for inflation to tie this money up. And you don't have that when you have sound money. And so we need to have a positive rate uh, of yield. And, and right now people aren't, just like for a long period of time, people haven't been avoiding investments because the cost of capital was too high. They were avoiding investments uh, because of other fundamentals in the economy. And the banks have heavily propped this system up because they're getting 2% uh, 
yield uh, on, on excess reserves with the Fed, they're not putting it into the fundamental economy where the risk takers and entrepreneurs are. Uh, you tie that to accredited investor rules, which have um, hurt early stage companies heavily in this space that we're talking about that are innovative and want to launch tokenized assets. You've got coders that aren't able to make investments in it because they don't already have a high net worth. And these people are the people that are hurt with monetary inflation. People look at all oh, the consumer price index. Yeah, that's your traditional consumer inflation. The monetary policy is creating monetary inflation and it's heavily inflating the assets on Wall Street and frankly destroying the value of the assets on Main Street. And most people's recourses to labor Labor is being heavily hurt by this. And so I think this is, a, this is a showing up in our culture where you see socialism becoming more popular, not by people that truly want it to be socialists in the true Marxist sense uh, broadly, but they see failures in the system. And uh, I think sound money would cure a lot of this and frankly unite a lot of our country um, if we could get back to those core fundamentals. But back to the subject of the recent fintech task force hearing on the digital dollar, you know, we saw a few different views presented there about how the government can use technology to improve the dollar in our payment system, especially when it comes to dispersing funds related to COVID relief. So how, how do you balance those two things as somebody who is on the committee with oversight over the Federal Reserve, but then is also supportive of Bitcoin and private attempts at digital money? Yeah. So if you look at the Federal Reserve, they... they um had something called the faster payments initiative and they wanted you know funds to clear more quickly people to be able to move money if you look uh at, at your normal you know you know bill pay in your account it takes days the old checking system took days uh you know the whole netting system versus gross on uh which gets in the weeds maybe some people are following in terms of how the banks settle um and, and so there was this desire to uh, improve the payment system and so the Fed for a long time said, we're not going to get into that space. So now after, you know, people have invested literally tens of billions of dollars in this space, you know, in the last year, the Fed has said, oh, we're going to look at the Fed operating this. Well, part of it is they're losing the return they get on uh, check clearing, for example. Uh, so they want to find sources of revenue for the Fed. But another part of it is they want control. And a lot of people do really like this central authority controlling things. I have highlighted why that's problematic and I will continue to. And so, but, you know, if you look at an era where uh, the world is, needs digital money, right? I mean, this has been the, the, the planet, frankly, hasn't all the way caught up to where uh, the internet era has moved us. And blockchain provides a great way to do that. Now, some people want to keep all the, flaws, in my opinion, all the flaws of the current system, and somehow believe that it's going to produce this great new system. But I don't, it'll just poison any new system with all the same flaws that make the current system, you know, inadequate. So um, that was, uh, you know, differences of opinion uh, uh, amongst colleagues, and frankly, uh, commentators all over. But, you know, what makes America, America is, uh, you know, things like the Fourth Amendment, our Bill of Rights, where we say you can have uh, an expectation of privacy as an American. And right now, you really have no expectation of privacy in your financial matters if you, uh, unless you're in cash, right? And, and some of my colleagues will point out that the only reason that you would want to defend cash or, you know, cryptocurrencies like 
Bitcoin that are truly decentralized distributed ledger products is to evade taxes or launder money or sometimes even more insultingly to say, well, you're only doing that so that it helps terrorists. I'm like, you know, I was an army ranger. Are you kidding me? It's incredibly insulting and it's meant to be, but they want the, they want the, they want the control uh, over this. And I, I think that that uh, has privacy problems. Uh, it has security problems. And frankly, it has efficiency problems. Uh, lastly, you know, when you have control, just like shit coins, somebody wants to use that power to help themselves or their friends. And so you have to have a system that can't be corrupted in that sense. And we know that, that humans fail. So you either have to have really good institutions that are populated with really good people consistently and uh, a high level of accountability, none of which applies to the current Fed in the sense of level of accountability. They're, they're not accountable in a way. I mean, Chairman Powell comes and speaks with us, you know, once or twice a year. Uh, he's available from time to time for conference calls, but there's not real transparency at the Federal Reserve and there's not really accountability for the policies that they're implementing. So, you know, we need a fundamental change in our uh, central banking policy in the country and frankly, globally, but, you know, especially in the United States, that's my, my concern. And if we get that right, I think this is, this is the thing. We've had periods in our history where we've gotten it phenomenally right. And those periods have made America the world's land of opportunity. And we've continued to be that land of opportunity in spite of all kinds of flawed policies uh, on a host of issues, right? And, you know, our founders said towards a more perfect union in order to perform, uh, in order to form a more perfect union. So we're a long ways away from it. I think we're especially long ways from it on our monetary policy. And I love the idea blockchain can bring, if we, if we do it right, and we do it in a permissionless way without a strong central authority. You know, one of the motivations behind Holdapack was to provide a venue for the crypto community, you know, which is generally, I think, very interested in the idea of rebuilding institutions using this new technology to interface with DC on, you know, maybe on how, how to do that. Related, you know, you were recently a signatory on a, a letter to the Treasury Department about using blockchain and AI to improve government processes, you know, namely making them more transparent and increasing accountability. Do you view initiatives like that as an introduction to those in DC about the potential for crypto and blockchain technology, you know, first as a way to improve processes, but then second, a way to kind of rethink them? Yeah, I, I do. And, and I think it's important. One, uh, we push on Congress, but two, when you push on the executive branch, you know, a lot of times executive branch can move more swiftly. I mean, that's been one of the reasons Congress has continued to kind of lose its authority and, and, um, continually struggles to solve problems, but a lot of times you do push, push more and more into the bureaucracy and, you know, expect the agencies to kind of go through the rulemaking process. And sometimes they have come up with great innovative solutions. And as an example, you know, the Department of Defense has really struggled to pass an audit. Frankly, they, they have a hard time accounting for all of the money that's appropriated to them uh, in a given year. And, you know, one of their reviews where they failed the audit, they couldn't account for, you know, $128 billion out of about $700 billion they had been appropriated. And if you could imagine a publicly traded company who couldn't um, pass an audit, they would be delisted, right? And if they had that kind of lack of ability to account for that kind of level of funding, the whole board would not only be terminated, people would probably be going to jail. Right. Uh, but we don't do that with some of our government agencies. And 
you know, blockchain really provides a solution for that. A real distributed ledger would show every move and some of it, frankly, would be classified and you could have a private blockchain for the classified portion and, and go to incredibly great lengths to secure that private blockchain. So even the public piece would have private keys. So there, there could be a massive improvement just on the accounting for, you know, appropriations if the Office of Management and Budget started moving everyone to a blockchain-based accounting system. So you could do that across the board, and that's just one use case. Uh, and just like I say, the internet, people are going to continue to come up with uh, use cases all over the place. And we have some really talented people that have committed to serve our government in, uh, in, in all the agencies. And uh, I trust that uh, they may be able to have some of their creativity unleashed and would love to see them come to us and say, hey, we need this. And I think another area, if you look at, you know, use of things uh, like FinCEN that watches all the financial transactions just to keep us safe, right? But they help us catch uh, bad guys, stop terrorists, prevent tax evasion, money laundering, fraud, all kinds of things. Uh, you know, they could, they could really benefit from some investment to keep up with where this technology is going. And finally, for our last question, you know, we know that members of Congress, even ones like you pay lots of attention to crypto, uh, have many more things going on. So, you know, what are some of your other legislative priorities for 2020 and beyond? Yeah, so you know, I talked a lot about privacy, for example. And so Zoe Lofgren, a member of Congress from California, and I, uh, frankly, successfully um, moved the needle on the debate for, you know, Pfizer reauthorization. Uh, we were going to get a uh, a really bad bill. We had a, a system of reforms that united progressives and conservatives, uh, and they had to pull the they had to pull the main bill through FISA, uh, through the Judiciary Committee. Uh, ultimately, uh, the people that want to keep spying on Americans uh, are in a position to continue spying on Americans. The president's threatened to veto that, and uh, and I think frankly there are people across the political spectrum that want them to. Maybe some for different reasons. Uh, but fundamentally, warrantless surveillance of American citizens is wrong. And uh, unless we build a broader coalition to do that, uh, we're going to see the status quo preserved there. A lot of that goes into the financial services space, but it's, uh, it's foundational. It's the Fourth Amendment. And I spend a lot of time on civil liberties issues. I'm working on a Defend Freedom Act uh, that, that goes through preserving the, the full Bill of Rights uh, as states responded to uh, COVID-19, frankly, you saw some states uh, stifle uh, speech, the press, uh, you know, religion, access to any number of things, some pretty spooky provisions on um, ways to go about contact tracing. We have ways to do it right now for all sorts of diseases that are HIPAA compliant. So you see a lot of things there with civil liberties. You see a lot with, um, with capital markets and how to increase uh, the growth in our economy and uh, lower barriers to investment, working to get rid of the accredited investor rule. And I'd say the last thing is just basic solutions. So uh, in the CARES Act, we spent a lot of money uh, with states, frankly, just about everywhere we spent a lot of money, but states and local governments have more money than they can spend right now on COVID direct expenses uh, for good reasons. You know, it wasn't as bad as we feared. Um, and people will always question why is that, but the reality is they have more money than they can spend by December 31st on COVID specific expenses. And that was the way it was appropriated. So when we talk to local officials, uh, frankly, our governor on down through, uh, local officials, 
if we had more flexibility than out of the money that's already spent, um, they're, they're going to need that whether there's more money appropriated later or not so they can make use of it. So a lot of just basic solutions to things. Congressman, thanks so much for your time today. It was, it was great chatting with you and uh, hoped we, we will see you again soon. Yeah, thanks for covering it. Really appreciate your support and interest in the space. Thank you for listening to Holdelpack's interview with Representative Warren Davidson. If you'd like to learn more about Holdelpack and our mission, check us out at www.holdelpack.org and follow us on Twitter at Holdelpack. Also, be sure to subscribe to our newsletter using the link in the bio to get exclusive updates and access to transcripts from each episode. I'm Tyler Wordy, and I'll see you next week as we speak to Representative Ted Budd from North Carolina.